Well, hello, uh, my name's James. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church, and I'm really looking forward to speaking uh, today. And that is because we are returning to our series in Genesis that we started at the beginning of January, where we're looking at the first three chapters of the Bible. Uh, and today we're going to be uh, going into chapter two. Uh, and we're going to be picking up the passage in verse 4. Now, if you are are watching this and perhaps you're not a Christian this morning, it's probably likely that you you know something about Genesis already, though. You you probably know that it tells the story of creation. Uh, You probably know something about the Garden of Eden, about some deadly trees, a talking snake, and so on. Well, today and over the next few weeks, we're going to be unpacking some of these passages to understand what was going on and how it affects our lives today. Uh, So let's read uh, this passage, starting at chapter 2, verse 4, 3 to 17. The words are also going to appear on the screen, but I would encourage you, if you do have a Bible, open it up, get it out, uh, because we're going to be going through the verse, and it's just helpful to have it to hand so that you can see where I'm uh, going. Uh, So let's read, starting with verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden... And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, I don't think anyone can argue that our nation, our TV-watching nation, is obsessed with behind-the-scenes footage. We love it, don't we? In fact, there are whole separate TV shows produced just to show extra footage and additional commentary on the original TV show. So an extra slice is for Bake Off. Uh, It takes two is for Strictly Come Dancing. Extra Factor is obviously for X Factor. And I am still waiting for something similar for Robson's Extreme Fishing Challenge. Uh, Anyways, uh, each of these shows zoom in on particular aspects of the original show to unpack what is going on? Why did Sue's Victoria sponge have a soggy bottom? Or why was Jason's knee so rigid in the tango? Chapter 2 of Genesis is a little like one of those TV shows. 
It doesn't tell a different story, but rather it takes a closer look at what one of the episodes that we read of in Genesis chapter 1, in which God creates a garden and places humankind into it. And at the beginning of this passage, the author is drawing our attention to this in verse 4. Look at it with me when it says, These are the generations. Those words serve as a marker in the text for us. They, it's like they begin a new section. To be honest, you can kind of ignore the numbers because they've been added in for us. And, and this section that starts in verse 4 actually runs through to the beginning of chapter 5 where it says it again, these are the generations of. And it actually happens many times in Genesis. So starting from verse 4, we begin a new section of the story. And that is important to note because there is a clear difference between what has come before and what we read of now. Not only is it a zoomed in account of what God had created, but something has changed in verse 4. I wonder if you spotted it. The name of God has changed. In chapter 1, we were introduced to God. In the beginning, God. But in verse 4 of chapter 2, God's name has changed to Lord God. Now, Lord, which hopefully is in capital letters in your Bible, in this instance, doesn't refer to a Lord as we know it, but rather it was the name of God, the name that God revealed to Moses, which in Hebrew was Yahweh. I mean, this was a big moment. God was not just a celestial being scattering stars into space and forming mountains, but his work of creating was about to become personal and intimate. And so God reveals his name. Now, before we get to God creating Adam, we see that there is a clue as to the purpose of humankind. Look at verse 5 of me. It says, There was no shrub or plants that had grown on the land because the Lord God had not sent rain, and there was no one to work the ground. Now, we're going to talk about this later because it comes up again in in verse 15. But we are given a heads up here as to why God created humankind. It was to work the ground, to nurture, to grow and care for the garden that they would be placed in. And it's interesting to consider that without humankind It says that the plants and the shrubs didn't grow. I just want us to hold on to that thought because verse 7 is one of the most remarkable verses in all of the Bible. It's remarkable because God creates humankind. And I want us to notice three things about this. That firstly, humankind is made by God intimately. Secondly, that that humankind is made by God ordinary and yet also special. And thirdly, that humankind was made by God for blessing. Firstly, humankind was made by God intimately. And verse 7 shows us this. Look at it with me. It says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. We see the Lord God forms a man. Now, if you have children in your family or or nieces or nephews, uh, you will have experienced that moment where they bring something that they've made to you, something out of clay or Play-Doh that never really resembles what it was supposed to be. 
And even the most affirming of people can struggle to see the intended design, yet they, they say all the same, they, oh, that is wonderful. Uh, but not with God who, who sweeps dust and forms a body. This isn't a hodgepodge job, but it is intri- intricate, complex, beautiful. And he doesn't just command it to exist from a distance, but rather forms this body as if with his own hands and gets up close and breathes life into his nostrils. Now, it doesn't say that God had hands, but it's the image that we're left with, isn't it? Almost like God became like us in order that we would become like him and bear his image. And of course, that is exactly what God eventually did do at the other end of the story. He had to enter creation to become exactly like us in order to make us once again like him. So we see in the first instance that humankind had been created intimately, not remotely and from a distance, that this was a hands-on creation. But second, we see that humankind was created by God, ordinary and yet special. You see, our bodies are both ordinary and incredibly special. Ordinary because actually the name given to Adam meant ground or earth. And so our bodies, we read, is they were created from the dust of the ground. They were made up of the same stuff that everything else is, is made of. Yes, incredibly complex, but also made from the same matter and materials as most other things. Common and ordinary. So it begs the question, well, what is distinct and special about humankind? What was it that made God say, this is very good, when he made humanity? Well, it's that he breathed life into us. This wasn't just oxygen that he he put in our lungs like some kind of divine CPR. No, the life that existed within God, that, that life was placed into humankind. I mean, that is miraculous. The life of God in humanity. And if you've watched TV shows like One Born Every Minute, or you've witnessed a baby being born in the flesh, you'll know that when the baby is born, there can sometimes be a bit of a wait before they take their first breath. Sometimes it happens immediately. Sometimes the wait is almost two minutes. But we know there is something hugely significant when the baby takes its first breath in the world. And if all is well, then that life that started in the womb continues out into the world into this bag of materials made of dust of the ground, as it were, God breathed his life so that it wasn't just a pile of dust, but a living and breathing miracle of the Lord God. And that is the same for every human ever created. You know, sadly, the the issue of life has become an incredibly divisive issue in our society. When does life begin and end. Who gets to decide when life should begin and end? One of the, the biggest tragedies of the last few decades and is continuing to ratchet up is the way in which our culture is taking control 
over decisions as to who can live and who can die. As if somehow we have the ultimate say on that. You know, to be responsible for the taking of life from someone that God has put his life into is a serious, serious thing. And as people who have been made in the image of God, who have been filled with his life, we must stand for life in our culture. And this issue around the sanctity of life isn't just one of those soapbox issues that that little group in society or even that little group in the church always go on about. As the people of God, we should be thinking about this and taking this incredibly seriously. Who orchestrates and ordains life is of paramount importance. And as Christians, we believe that that God does. From conception in the womb to the last breath on this planet, it is God that orchestrates and ordains. This God who knitted each one of us together in our mother's womb, who, as it were, breathed life in us, has the final say, but tragically, more and more people are taking matters into their own hands. And it leaves a voiceless generation who have a right to life, who are not being heard. Jesus talks about this too. In, In Matthew chapter 25, he says these words, which are both challenging and pertinent to this issue of the sanctity of life. Jesus said this, he said, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. What we believe and what we do on issues like this matter to Jesus. You see, God breathes his life into humanity and not just in a general broad sweep but in an intimate way for each person that has ever been created. Life for God is sacred and as Christians we must speak up and stand for life and not stand on the sidelines. A good place to start to read more about it would be a website called Right to Life who lobby the government on issues like this, I'd encourage you to check that out. Now, I know for some people who will be watching this, this will bring up a whole load of stuff for you. Perhaps past hurt and experience. And it's so important that you hear this, that God loves you. He sees you. He knows what you've been through. He cares for you. He is rich in love for you. He will never push you away you might be watching this today and you've been carrying the burden of a decision that you made many years ago and every day you have lived with the guilt and shame of that you've kept it hidden for years perhaps can I encourage you to speak to someone today in in fact because because we knew we were going to be talking about some of this together with Julia Binadel who oversees and helps coordinate our pastoral care team across the church uh, we, we've got a couple of people ready to talk to you. We're going to have a Zoom link in the chat that you can click on at the end and, and we'll do it discreetly. There'll be a waiting room set up for you so that uh, it will be confidential. But it's an opportunity for you to speak to someone, perhaps even for the first time, to listen, for someone to listen to you and to pray with you. 
if, if Zoom isn't your cup of tea, uh, then, then, you can, then you can email. And uh, we set up an email address, pastoralcare at citychurch.org.uk. You can fire an email, and someone from the pastoral care team will pick that up and get back to you and, and start that conversation, that processing with you. But can I encourage you, whether that is something in your past or actually you're dealing with some stuff right now, I want, I want to encourage you to speak to someone, message someone, get prayer, speak to one of the pastors. It's so important. And so in verse 7, we see that humankind is made intimately, that it is both made ordinary and special. And finally in verses 8 and 9, humankind was made for blessing. God creates humankind and places them in a garden. And this isn't any ordinary garden. I mean, look how it's described. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. This was paradise. And if we know anything about God up to this point, is that he took incredible delight and care in what he created. And so this Garden of Eden, God's garden, if you like, was paradise. All kinds of trees and plants. It was, it was a garden of abundance with far more than one man could possibly need. It was a picture of God's lavish grace to humanity. A garden of plenty and provision for humankind to enjoy. You know, when we ask ourselves the question of, of why am I here, we would do well to come back to these verses to remind ourselves of why God created us. We were made to enjoy God and to enjoy life. Now, this is a particularly difficult time, isn't it, to feel any sense of joy. But perhaps cast your mind back to those heady days of uh, pre-lockdown life could it be said of you that you were a person that was filled with the joy of God? And joy doesn't necessarily mean happiness or being the life and soul of the party. In fact, the people that demonstrate this joy and an enjoyment of God best, I think, are those who, who through great challenge and difficulty are still able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I am blessed because I know God and he has given me life. So humankind was made by God intimately, ordinary and special, and for blessing, to be recipients of God's goodness and gracious provision. And what seems to be unfolding in these verses, therefore, is God's plan for life and human flourishing. This theme of life and abundance continues to unfold. So we had the breath of life in verse 7. Then in verse 8, we're introduced to this wonderful paradise of Eden that is teeming with life and abundance. In, verses, uh, in verse 10, we have the introduction of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we'll come to. We're also given details in 11 to 14 of rivers flowing in and out of the garden, bringing life and health to it. So the, the writer is describing these things and zooming in on this part of the story, is trying to draw our attention to this idea that the Lord God it's the God of all life. He is the God of abundance, of growth, of flourishing. That from the power of his word, life was brought into being. That out of the very existence of who God is, 
became a paradise of life that humankind was to enjoy. And so it's into this garden that was full of life that he placed his most precious creation, humankind. And we see that in verse 15. That God not only therefore calls Adam to enjoy the creation around him, but in fact gives Adam a particular task to do. Remember back in verse 5 he said there was a heads up, uh, a clue that was given that the shrubs and the plants couldn't grow because there was no one to work the ground. And in verse 15, there's a bit more flesh on the bone given here, that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. God's original intention was for humanity to work. I think there's a misconception that work was a result of the fall, which happens in the next chapter. And we'll be looking at it in the coming weeks. But we can, we can often treat work like it's a massive inconvenience, can't we? Or somehow we've been sold a lie. I remember childhood holidays. Uh, we'd often go caravanning. Come on to the caravan people. Uh, and it wasn't uh, too long before one of me or my siblings were, were commanded by my parents to go and empty the slops bus- bucket or, or the waste bucket and we complain that we were on holiday why do we have to do these kind of things and we can often approach work a little bit like that why do we have to work but work in actual fact came before the fall and Adam was given responsibility to work the ground and care for the garden and in doing so God's intention was that Adam would receive satisfaction and reward from doing his work now if you are a child of the 90s, um, or grew up in the 90s, when, when, which I was then, it's quite likely that you would have followed or have been aware of WWF. Uh, now, you'd be forgiven for thinking that I was talking about the worldwide fun of nature with the panda logo, uh, singers were talking about gardens, but I'm not talking about that. I'm, I, I am, in fact, talking about the World Wrestling Federation. Uh, and WWF was a hit in my childhood. And we would spend hours reenacting uh, on trampolines, wrestling moves of The Rock, St- uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Undertaker, perfecting the DDT move, and if you know, you know. Um, and there were these brilliant moments that were unannounced in wrestling fights where uh, one of the wrestlers would tag another fighter in who just happened to be in the audience to take on that opponent. It seemed unfair, but that was how it often worked. And do you know what? There, there were moments in our lives when it's like God tags you in and says, it's over to you now. I think this is one of those moments. God had created everything, put everything in place, created the environment and the resources needed for Adam to flourish, and then tagged Adam in and said, it's over to you now. It's your responsibility to care and grow this garden. You could go further and say the level of blessing and reward that Adam would experience was dependent on how well he cared for what God had given him. And that there would be a satisfaction, therefore, from a job well done. In this paradise that God had created and placed Adam into care for, the adage of you get out what you put in definitely stood for reason. That our work would be rewarded, that our contribution to this world would mean something. Now work can take all sorts of forms, can't it? It's not that we all have to suddenly 
become gardeners. And uh, my track record suggests that wouldn't be a particularly good line of work for me. Um, but it does mean that for those who are able to work, there is an opportunity and a responsibility to steward what we've been given and make a meaningful contribution to society. It means that from the highest paid workers to the lowest, from public offices uh, with, with a platform to unseen volunteers, from traveling business people to stay-at-home parents, God places equal dignity and value for all. And that work is something that we have been created for. Now there is pain and there is toil and that actually does then come as a result of the fall. And we see that in the following chapters. But it's important to see that work was given as a gift. An example in which he tags us in and says, it's over to you, it's yours to do what you will. Now, the analogy kind of breaks down a little bit because although God gives us purpose and responsibility, he doesn't, in fact, abandon us. He doesn't abdicate responsibility himself, but rather by grace, he promises to be with us in it empowers us to fulfill our purpose in the world. And I think when we see work in light of all of this, when we see it as a gift and an opportunity to partner with God, it changes things. Now it's not necessarily a chore, but an opportunity to take responsibility. Yes, there will inevitably be challenges, but it's an opportunity for the life of God to flow through you and to those around you, to bring about growth around you. We then get to the next two verses, the last two verses in this passage, which we've been looking at, in which God gives Adam a command. God says this in verse 16 to Adam. He says, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. I mean, let's just stop there for a minute because it's important to hear that. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. We're so quick to jump to verse 17, aren't we, and pull out the problems, to be suspicious and negative towards God. But we've got to read verse 16 properly. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. There is limitless variety from which to choose from. There is fruit in abundance. There is far more than one man needs. You, Adam, can pretty much have it all. Or like the Bible story book, or the Jesus storybook Bible says, you can have the run of the place. We see the incredible provision of God in verse 16. But we also see it in verse 17. Read with me, it says, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. God's generous kindness can be seen in verse 17 too. When he points out the tree to Adam that he must not eat from. You know, this wasn't a game of Russian roulette where, where God said that there's this one tree somewhere undetected that will kill you. He says, you see that tree? You see that one? Don't eat from it. In fact, God in his kindness not only identifies the tree, but he goes on to explain what will happen to Adam if he does eat from it. I mean, it couldn't be clearer. If you eat from that tree, you will die. There is no escape. 
And you could be left thinking, well, what is God doing in this moment? Why had God set it up in that way? Why had he placed the tree there in the first place? Identified the tree to Adam, explained the consequences of eating from that tree. I think it's because God's desire is always to reveal truth to people, but then give people the opportunity to trust and obey him. To trust and obey You know, if you want to know how to please God, if you've ever asked yourself the question, how do I please God? It's here. It's to trust and to obey God. It's to do what he says. And we can look at Adam, and if you know the story, you you probably know what happens because he doesn't obey God. He doesn't trust God. He he does go and eat from the tree that he was commanded not to. And we we can look at Adam and almost say out loud, what were you doing? What were you doing? You were given everything. You were given freedom. You were placed in paradise. And yet it wasn't enough. You thought better. You took control. And as you follow that line of thinking, the spotlight begins to shift and find its way to you and to me. And I realise that I would have done the same. The sin that that came to Adam and came through Adam is is also the sin that has come to me. And and you may have heard sin being described as all the bad things or the wrong things that we do, but I'm not sure that really gets to the heart of the issue. Sin is a condition that has rooted itself in our hearts and constantly takes us away from, from God and no one is immune to it and sin manifests itself in disobedience and rebellion to God and and disobedience and rebellion to God leads to death it says that another part of the Bible that the wages of sin is death and we like Adam have chosen our own way we we love to take control of our own lives we become the God as it were of our little garden our little kingdom And walk away from all that God has graciously given us. And we say to ourselves and we say to God, I think I know best, thanks. I think I know what's good for me. I think I'll take it from here, God. And in doing so, this isn't just a little falling out or a little tiff between you and God. Our sin separates us from God. God is pure and he is holy and we are not. And our sin prevents us from from being in the presence of a holy and perfect God. It says in the Bible that we've all gone astray. We've all gone our own way. And yet, there was one man who who didn't. There was one man who, who never sinned. There was one man who never went his own way never rebelled against God, who, who as a matter of fact found himself one evening in another garden, thousands of years later. But this time it wasn't Eden, it was the Garden of Gethsemane in Jerusalem. And here in this garden, this man was presented with a choice. And rather than disobeying and, and running away in shame, said to God these words, yet not my will, but yours be done. This man was, of course, Jesus, 
the Son of God who, who lived perfectly, who never sinned, who, who never turned from his Father, who was faced with his imminent arrest for crimes he never committed, who in this garden praying, knowing what was about to happen, gripped with anxiety, it said he had sweat drops of blood and he said, not my will, God, but yours be done. Jesus Christ knew that he, was, he wasn't just going to endure the physical pain of the cross as excruciating as, as that was, but, but that his crucifixion, in his crucifixion, he would receive the full punishment of our sin. The punishment that we rightfully deserve because of our rebellion. It was all placed on Jesus. And so something far greater than just physical pain would be experienced by Jesus, but the weight of every sin put on him on the cross. I mean, you can't really even put it into words. Jesus took the wrath of a holy and perfect God on himself, even though he didn't do anything wrong on our behalf. And he did it because we are his joy. We are his prized possession. We are his image. He has breathed his life into us. He did it for you and he did it for me so that we might have life. You see, Jesus did what Adam couldn't do. Jesus did what we cannot do. But Jesus made a way that we would be ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, accepted by God and and filled with his life forevermore. That we would have a God that we can know intimately. That we would have a God that we could speak to like any other friend. And yet also he is our creator. That this is a God who is not removed from our suffering. But identifies it. And has experienced it himself. And I want to finish by, by reading a psalm. And this psalm, in light of what we've looked at so far, is, is pretty breathtaking. Because... Although the psalm was written hundreds of years after Adam and hundreds of years before Jesus, we see that the writer manages to show us the difference between the two. A life of rebellion compared to the life that is blessed. I'm going to read Psalm 1. It says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, not stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf doesn't wither in all that he does he prospers the wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here we see a picture of Jesus, don't we? And we also see something of the fruitful life. A life of abundance and freedom. A life that is planted and rooted in the law and the word of God. Join to the one which true life comes from. Don't you want that? Don't you want to please God? Don't you want to trust him and obey him? 
Don't you want that for your friends and for your family? For this city, for those who who don't have a voice, for the weakest and vulnerable around us. Don't you want that? Well, it can start with you. And that is to run to Jesus. Run to him. Turn to your creator.